Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. We are so grateful to have Reverend Christopher Lee with us this morning. He is currently Grace Presbytery's General Presbyter. I think that's the right title. Is that right? Executive Executive Presbyter. I'm sorry. Um, Chris has been in that role since March, uh, so he is very much new to it, but he is not new to the Presbytery. He previously served as an associate pastor at Canyon Creek Presbyterian Church, where he was the associate pastor for community engagement and play. Chris and I bonded because um, he is a fellow North Carolinian, and I'm always on the lookout uh, for my people in this great state of Texas. He was born in Charlotte, raised in Florida, but he does call Charlotte home. Um, He ultimately finished his college studies at a school in Charlotte, went to seminary in Charlotte, and served churches there before coming to Dallas. Um, If you'd asked me if I knew Chris when I moved here, I would have said no, but it turns out we do go back much further than either of us knew because he is married to a teacher. She taught at my high school, and Chris (laughs) proposed to his wife on the morning announcements. It was very memorable, and so I actually witnessed his proposal to his wife when I was a high school student, Um, and so that was a fun connection to make. If you were in uh, the connection hour with Chris, that you know that he is energetic, he is enthusiastic about the work of the church, he is bold, he is unafraid to ask questions, um, and we are so grateful that he has brought his passion, his intelligence, and his energy to the presbytery. I am so grateful to have him as a colleague and a friend, and we are so grateful that you are blessing us with your presence this morning, Chris. Thank you. Our first scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, that is the book of beginnings. But before we turn to our scripture, let's pray. Oh God, just when we think we have you figured out, just when we think we have faith figured out, you surprise us. But it turns out you've long been in the business of surprises. So surprise us once more as we read about the ways that you have surprised our ancestors in faith. Grant us courage from the words that are read and proclaimed today, that we may open our hearts and our minds to being surprised by you yet. In your son's name we pray. Amen. The first scripture comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our epistle reading today comes from the fourth chapter of Romans, verses 13 through 25. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, it is time for your word to be proclaimed. 
Lord, I would ask that you hide me behind the cross so that it is not me who is seen or heard, but that it is only you who is seen and heard. May the meditations that go forth be not of my heart, but of yours. For your people, in this time and place, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I started this servant, this, ser- this service different at the early service. I noticed my wife come in, and she's not going to like that I'm calling her out. But my wife is there, so if you just turn right there on the left with my youngest daughter, Jordan, there she is. She's trying to hide, and she's going to get me for calling attention to her. It was Miss Barron at the time. And funny story about that, uh, she never said yes, actually. She was just like, but caught her off guard. How many of us have a picture from Ansel Adams in our office or workspace? Amazing photographer, always a unique perspective. He once said this, you don't take a photograph, you make it. Again, you don't take a photograph, you make it. So if I were to ask you, what does your picture of Jesus look like? What would Jesus actually look like in your eyes? That question kind of depends on where we come from, what goes into our story, who we are. In my travels, I've visited various church buildings, and I've often seen the Anglo-Eurocentric version of Jesus on the stained glass windows, you know, the Matthew McConaughey-looking one. During my time in the Holy Land, I spent time there in the Middle East, And I remember meeting with a forensic anthropologist who talked to us about what Jesus probably looked like here on this earth. You have that version. In our parlor room, there's always the picture. In a lot of churches I've been in, the parlor rooms, we still have those. You always see the picture with the slight pink and orange hue of Jesus holding the little lamb, the gentle shepherd Jesus. Then one that we don't often see. I've never seen this picture in a church before, exorcist Jesus. You know, Jesus did that stuff too. I've seen lots of images of, depending on where you're from, you might have the pacifist view of Jesus. Jesus the pacifist, of bringing peace. And then you have the activist Jesus, flipping tables in a temple. Our understanding of Jesus is often shaped by our vastly different experiences and perspectives, uh, yet we are reminded in Scripture of one great and eternal truth that binds all of our understandings together, and it's simply this, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. So no matter what your perspective is, it all goes back to that. So if you were to think of the word faith, If I were to ask you, what does your picture of faith look like, what would you say? Now, even though we share a common spiritual ancestry when it comes to faith, I'm certain that our pictures of faith might look very different depending on where you come from, what you've experienced, what you've been through, and how you understand God to have moved in your life. Paul's understanding And picture of faith in the text today provides for us a different way to think about faith. 
For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What Paul is attempting to do for the churches in Rome is to paint a different picture of what faith really is. And I believe that he does this in hopes that they would possibly rethink or dare so even modify their understanding of what faith is. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is offering us the same invitation today to maybe reconsider or modify our understanding of what faith is. Faith is complicated. Faith is complicated. Trying to comprehend the intricacies and nuances of faith is like trying to understand why the word rhythm is spelled the way that it is. It doesn't make sense. I can find many other words in the language that don't make sense, that that should not be spelled that way. It shouldn't be. We talked about the state fair. She mentioned that. There are certain things you should not do with food that don't make sense. You see it there. Think about this. I mean, every single year, think about our football fandom. And I don't know which side of the aisle you were on yesterday. I just sit back and laugh and make fun of everybody. But one thing I do know is what doesn't make any sense is, is how every single year, Cowboys fans every year tell me we're going to win the Super Bowl, yet spectacularly find a new and different way to fail every single year. Doesn't make sense to have hope in them, does it? Sorry. I would argue that we find it difficult to understand faith because we try to understand it. I've always been fascinated by this request that I've experienced in not only ministry at the mid-council level, you're hearing it now often, but in pastoral ministry. And I've, I've actually uttered this phrase from my lips many times in my life. Um, the request that we all know, right? We've all made it, if we're going to tell the truth. We said we could be broken here. Let's be broken together. The request which we have said, God, can you give me more faith? God, give me more faith. My prayer today is for you to give me more faith. As if faith can be something measured, quantified or managed through human effort, as if we can ask God to take our faith from a scale of four and make it a ten. Doesn't work that way. How many situations have you found yourself in in life in which the outcome of the event did not match the frequency of your supplication. Let's say it simpler. How many times in life did you believe a situation or a circumstance would have turned out differently only if you had more faith? Maybe I'd be a better Christian if I had more faith. Maybe things wouldn't be so bad if I only had a little bit more faith. Maybe he, she, or they would have been healed if I only had a little bit more faith. Maybe God would respond faster if I had more faith. Maybe God would listen to me if I had more faith. Faith doesn't work that way. In his commentary on the passage, Adam Hurlson says this, he says that Paul speaks of Abraham's faith as growing in strength, holding promise. 
Now what this translation fails to account for is that Abraham did not grow strong of his own accord, but presumably by God. So what in the world does strengthening of faith mean for someone like Abraham and certainly for someone like us? I mean, we have to think about who Abraham is. This is the same Abraham that laughed in the proverbial face of God. Wait, we're going to have what? (laughs) You're kidding me. But we lift Abraham up as like this exemplar, right? We do that with a lot of people in Scripture. Faith is only made strong through the continual and effectual relationship between humankind and God. This is going to rub our Presbyterian ears just a little bit, so bear with me. Faith cannot be taught. It is lived. Faith cannot be earned. It is given. Faith cannot be measured. It can only be exhibited. And I understand this is heresy in the transactional world in which we live. We live in a space that says, if I put this much faith into this thing, I should expect this result. If I give this much to this thing, I should get what I want. If we do it that way, then that should result in exactly how we thought it should land. That's the language of investment and gains, which is not the language of faith and life in Christ. To live, we must die to ourselves. Loss is gain. When that reality, that idea settles down in the very fabric of our souls, we we know what it means to hope against hope. You heard that phrase, one of my favorite phrases in the scripture says, hoping against hope. It's that faith that I'm reminded from my grandmother who was a part of a movement, which is one of the reasons why I'm someone like me is standing before someone like you today who said that all we had was a hope against hope. When everyone would say we were crazy, everyone said that that couldn't happen or that wouldn't be a reality. We hoped against hope. We had no no promise that it would work out the way we wanted to, but we hoped against hope. Abraham believed because God said so. This is faith. Belief for no other reason than God said so. Call it blind faith, call it folly, but there is no force that has existed in history that is more powerful than God speaking. Let's consider the ridiculousness of Abraham's faith. Abraham didn't receive faith because he was so worthy or because he figured out how to bend the universe to his will, the promise came to Abraham based on faith that was given as an act of grace by God. We know this to be true because if you think about the timing of the events and the unfolding of Scripture, the law hadn't even been given yet. So all Abraham had was to trust the very word of God. The law didn't exist at that time yet. So why then, church, are we trying to bring earthly solutions to kingdom affairs? 
We can't program people through the doors. There are no experts when it comes to God. We operate as if we rely on everything else but God to live and move when it is in God with God that we move, live, and have our being. Think about this conversation, particularly as it relates to justice, and I mentioned my grandmother earlier. I would love to ask her what she thinks about the, the goings-on and things that are happening in our, in our culture, and our conversations. And I were to ask her, someone from her generation that was a part of that stuff, and I could see them saying, I said, well, what do we need to do? What, what would we need to do? And she says, well, y'all talk too much. We did. Can't book study our way to it. It's a starting place. But it takes a trust in a God to hold us always. We want people through the doors? Well, here's the solution in faith. Take the doors off. want the church to have a greater presence in the world? Maybe faith would compel us to actually go and be the church and stop acting like any one of the thousands of membership clubs out there. I've always said this, church folk love camping. I think there was some talk about fishing. Faith is believing in God's yes more than the world's no. Faith is recognizing that if God never did one more thing for us, God has already done more for us than we could ever ask for or deserve. Think about that for a second. Remember when I told you about the pictures of Jesus? My favorite picture happens to be the cynical Jesus. You know that Jesus, when someone would just profess their, their undying loyalty to Jesus, say, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. When I read scripture, I feel like Jesus is always constantly asking people, are you sure? The way I read it, and this is just my own particular interpretation, we all have a different picture, right? I think Jesus was often trying to dissuade people. You follow me, this is where I'm going, this is where it's, le- this is where it's headed, are you sure you want to do this? My favorite picture is on that boat with his disciples on that raging sea, you know, with all the stuff going on around. And I'm pretty sure the disciples awoke Jesus because they wanted Jesus to fix it, to address the problems all around. Jesus, look all around. What are you doing? Look at all these problems. Address, fix this stuff, fix this thing. Jesus gets up and says, well, where's your faith? You would think the first thing would be just calm everything. I mean, he did that, but you would think that'd be the first thing. You would think that Jesus wouldn't be sleeping in the first place. Like, how in the world could you sleep through that? Maybe Jesus was not concerned so much as what was going on around them. 
Maybe the message wasn't that Jesus can do anything. Maybe the real message is that Jesus was really concerned about the state of their faith. Maybe Jesus is asking us the same question today. Maybe not where is your faith, but how is your faith? Instead of trying to drum faith up, that's not something you can drum up or call into existence. We can't be so arrogant as to assume that we can say that we are going to perfect our faith. Perhaps our journey, and it is a lifelong journey, is to take Jesus' invitation to rethink our faith. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always. Amen.